0: Welcome to the invest like a boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks and I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for
1: exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of invest like a boss. Today, we have on another very special guest, William Bernstein.
0: Man, I really, really like this guy. This is episode 16, and Bill Burstein is the man when it comes to together portfolios. His picks beat every single other portfolio out there, according to our last guest,
1: Meb Faber. Yeah. So this is a great episode to last week's with Meb Faber. So Meb actually went through at least a dozen different portfolios. And then as Johnny said, the portfolio that he reviewed back until 1973 that did the best was developed by Bill in his book, The Intelligent Asset Allocator. If anyone hasn't read that, I highly recommend it. It's a great compliment to the new Tony Robbins book that we often talk about, Money Master of the Game.
0: Yeah, but what's really cool about this episode is how he talks about even though he was number one, he and, and it wasn't that he was just compared against a dozen other portfolios. He was compared against the other dozen best portfolios out there. So it's almost like saying he was compared against the other top 10 and, and, and he came up a winner. But what's really cool about it is in this episode, he talks about how, what he would do differently to make it even better. How he would, you know, I, I guess, you know, high time is 20 but the history of the, the market, it, it repeats itself. And, you know, there's a big disclaimer that past performance does not equal future um, success, but... That is all we have really to go on. If you really think about
1: it, yeah, absolutely. And so he, Bill, frankly, says he wish he had, had written the book fifty years ago. And luckily for all of us, we um, we can read the book now and learn from all of his knowledge. And he's written several best selling books on finance and modern portfolio theory. But one of the things that we wanted to speak to him most was about lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. And, and I think this uh, this is relevant to a much broader, uh, m- many more people than you would initially think, because it doesn't mean that you're just coming into a million dollars and figuring out what to do with it. It, may, it might mean you have $5,000 or $50,000 that you saved up and you want to figure out, do I invest it all today or should I invest this sum over the course of six months, 12 months, 18 months? So I think it's, and it's something extremely important for everyone to understand what the risks and rewards are of doing dollar cost averaging or just putting it all on the market at one time.
0: I love it. And on a side note, I'm happy to be back in person with my buddy, Samuel. That's
1: right. You sound loud and clear. Yep. We're uh, chiding to you from Burgas, Bulgaria. Didn't see this one coming on the list, but it's a great place. And uh, we'll be doing another couple episodes while we're on the road on a trip up to the Ukraine.
0: Exciting things. We got a little suntan from the day, had a couple uh, Bulgarian and Czech beers, so get ready to rock and roll and grab your own beer. Yeah,
1: and everybody stay tuned after this episode, we're going to do a little recap of some of the key takeaways that we learned during this really, really great episode with Bill Bernstein.
0: And there were a ton of them. All right, guys, enjoy.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. Today, we're joined with Bill Bernstein, who is a financial theorist, a neurologist, and has also written several best-selling books in the field of modern portfolio theory bill thanks so much for coming on the show we're really excited to have you my pleasure so we were just bill and i were catching up before the the call and you are a frequent traveler and used to reside i'm not sure if you re- actually resided but um i've been up to shang mai quite a bit
3: yeah I, I mean you know we're just we're just tourists go there for <laughs> a week every 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 couple years you know like the climate it's uh, it's nicer than, uh than Bangkok, and uh, it certainly has good uh, tourist infrastructure. It's just a great place to hang out.
2: Yeah, it really is. So there's a lot of us that uh, spend a lot of time up there. Johnny and I have my co-hosts have spent a good part of the last two years there, and now we're 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 kind of migrating a little bit towards Bangkok, just because. You know, it's a a little bit more going on year-round. So that's where I'm at now. And and you're in, I guess, in the West Coast in Portland?
3: Yeah, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, Bangkok is such a vibrant uh, multicultural city it's 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 very much like london in that regard
2: yeah yeah it's interesting it's good to hear you say that because so many people come in and they're here for two days and they don't really get to experience the 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 real the the softer side of bangkok um and it's good to hear you know people at your level that enjoy the city and and i think it's becoming much more of a hub for for professionals as well um Versus just kind of tourists, maybe in the in the past uh, couple of decades. So we're enjoying our time here. Um, when's the next time you're planning to come out?
3: Oh, probably not until early uh, 2018. We were, this 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 next year is uh, is, is pretty well spoken. The 2017 is pretty well spoken for us. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably we'll probably come out the year after.
2: Oh, good. Well, hopefully we'll cross paths out here at some point. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really funny because when I found you that I found that you are actually a neurologist. I was thinking to myself what a perfect compliment for someone who is an investment is giving investment advice and writing books on it, because that's certainly something I need is someone who can calm my nervous system and tell me a better way to invest. So is that, is that by just coincidence that you were, you, you got into neurology and also finance or was there a different path to that?
3: Well, the two are probably connected. Um, I think that, uh, Neurology probably attracts uh, more analytical and quantitatively uh, oriented people. Uh, although, you know, there are other medical specialties that, that do that uh, as well, uh, you know, particularly cardiology and nephrology, uh, people who, who treat kidney diseases. That's also fairly mathematical and model mm-hmm. and model based. Uh, so, you know, really what it boils down to though is I, I just have a, you know, a scientific uh, bent and I tend to approach uh subjects quantitatively and uh, you know like like everybody else uh, who lives in the united states i live in a country that really doesn't have a functioning social welfare system so Mm -hmm. you have to save and invest for yourself uh and uh you know i approached it uh, the way i thought anybody with scientific training would do not necessarily medical neurological training uh but just you know i wanted to make it evidence-based and uh there was it's possible to do that now. And that's what I did.
2: I like it. I just finished reading your book, The Intelligent Asset Allocator. I absolutely loved it. I wish I had had read it when I was in college and, First, starting to to dabble with investing, so uh, I appreciate the book, and I would definitely recommend it to anybody out there who hasn't has not read it to read it. I actually listened to it on Audible, and I, I listened on one point two five times speed. I got through it in like four hours, and was immediately back to my drawing board of figuring out how to do things better. But
3: I wished I had written it, you know, at age you know when I was in college, instead of at age fifty.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, luckily for everyone out there that's uh, just starting or in their 20s, there's so much good information out there, including this book that helps you get a base for understanding um, a better way to invest. And I know you're a big proponent of modern portfolio theory. Can you let us know like a little bit more just in layman terms what that what that exactly is?
3: Well, modern portfolio theory, if you will, is sort of the, the second leg of of finance. Uh, the first leg of, of finance is the efficient market hypothesis, which basically says that you know ninety nine percent of people uh, can't pick stocks, they can't time the market, uh, and further, the people that look like they can do it are really more likely than not lucky uh, mm-hmm. than than skillful. The the second leg of that is is what you're, we're talking about here, which is modern portfolio theory, which is once you accept the efficient market hypothesis, then it really comes down to a question of what asset classes are you going to invest in Mm -hmm. and in what proportion. And, And so, you know, there's stocks, there's bonds among stocks, there's foreign stocks, emerging market stocks. Um, there's other asset classes as well, mm-hmm. real estate investment trusts, and and maybe you know if you're really a fanatic uh, about asset classes, things like uh, precious metals, uh, equity, and uh, and uh, petroleum mm-hmm. stocks. And modern portfolio theory is the science, if you will of how to combine all of those things into a portfolio and how to measure their performance and also what kind of returns and risks to ex- to expect when you do that sort of thing.
2: That's great. So last week we actually had Meb Faber on, on uh, the show. We just released that episode, it was awesome. And this is the type of thing that we were exploring. And what turned us initially onto this was Tony Robbins' new book, uh, Money Master the Game. And we always say that there's, there's a lot of opinions out there about it, but it was a, it was a good book for us because it kind of excited us about, you know, in t- typical Tony Robbins fashion about empowering you to, you can do this yourself. You don't necessarily need an advisor. And I think this goes in line with, with a lot of things that you're teaching. And in the book, well, actually, one of the, very coincidentally, when we were looking at the, the asset allocation models that Meb Faber was testing, yours <laughs> ended up winning over the last uh, 50 years that he did the tests and I just want to highlight what that what the composition was of that. It was 25% U.S. stocks, 25% small cap stocks, 25% international stocks and 25% bonds. So we actually chatted briefly about this in last week's episode, but I just thought it was fantastic that you were coming on the show this, this week. And this was the best performing model that he had tested over the last, uh, I guess it was since
3: 1973. Yeah, he, he was, he was being, he was being very generous because <laughs> the, the real the, the re- yes. My, the, the portfolio that I recommended, mm-hmm. uh, which is really 50% U.S. stocks and 25% foreign stocks and 25% uh-huh. bonds because it's U.S. large and U.S. small. Each of those got a quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason, the simple reason why that portfolio did so well is not because I'm a genius, uh-huh. uh, but because it had, of all the portfolios that you that were on that list, it simply had the highest stock exposure. Right. And so, yes, it got the highest return, but it also had the highest
2: risk. So if, if it was even more weighted in stocks, then it would it be safe to assume that it could have even outperformed this model during that same time period?
3: Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you if you dial up, if you just take my, for example, my allocation, mm-hmm. or for that matter, any of the other allocations in in, in the list that you're talking about, if you simply dialed on each of them, dial the stock up or dial the stock down, uh, you would you would dial up the return, uh, or dial down the return It's simply Mm -hmm. a function, you know, over the long run, uh, stocks almost always beat bonds. And although they, <laughs> funny thing is they haven't over the past 20, but the reason for that, mm-hmm. uh, and, but over the very long term, certainly 30, 40, 50 years, the more risk you take, the higher the return you get. The trick is, is, so you might say to yourself, well, why aren't I investing 100% stocks? And the answer is that there aren't too many sentient beings in this quadrant of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who can tolerate an all-stock portfolio.
2: Yeah, so who can tolerate an all-stock portfolio? I guess my co-host, Johnny, he's a, uh, probably a 10 out of 10 on the risk factor. Um, but I guess in, in theory, the younger you are and the, er- the longer you have to invest, the more risk-tolerant you should be. Is that, is that kind of traditional thinking?
3: Yeah, it's, 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 it's basically falls right out of finance mm-hmm. theory. Uh, and I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds in this, but, mm-hmm. you know, academic finance people like to talk about how risky really are stocks. And there are a lot of, you know, abstruse mathematical things you go through. And the, the, the orthodox answer is, yes, stocks are, they get more riskier with time. Mm-hmm. And they, they, really, they really do. Uh, and there are a number of reasons why that is. But the key thing that no one ever asks is, how old is the investor? So if you're a young investor who is typically saving, Uh, And you've got this nice stream of savings that you're putting, socking away into your retirement portfolio every year. That person should be invested 100% in stocks. And for that person, stocks aren't risky. In fact, that person should get down on their hands and knees and pray for... An awful bull market that lasts for as long as he is accumulating those assets, mm-hmm. uh, and then he wants the bull market to take off when he retires. Whereas the exact opposite is true for a geezer like me, uh, <laughs> which 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 is that you know, assuming that I have no more savings and I'm now living off of those savings, I'm I'm not saving, I'm I'm decumulating, mm-hmm. I'm spending <laughs> my my savings. Uh, for for a person like me, a bear market. In stocks and being too heavily in stocks can be an absolute disaster Right. because you can you you, you combine you know a bad bull, a bad bear market with with say a burn rate of anything more than four or five percent uh, and throw in an illness and you're toast within ten or fifteen years
2: Ugh. and you may live
3: another 10 or fifteen years beyond that so for, so for so for old people stocks are three mile island Chern- chernobyl toxic
2: mm, gotcha and so the. In your book, the asset uh, intelligent asset allocator, when you you kind of present that portfolio—the twenty five percent stocks, twenty uh, U.S., twenty five percent small cap, twenty five percent international stocks, and twenty five percent bonds—you kind of get, get give three levels of, I guess that you could say, involvement depending on how diversified within those those asset classes you wanted to be. But for someone who just wanted to go out and buy these four asset classes. I guess you could just do that with four funds, right? Like the US stocks could just be the SP five hundred and, and so on and so forth.
3: Yeah, exactly. You could you could you can do that particular portfolio for next to nothing in expenses. You can buy with ETFs, for example, each of those asset classes for between five and ten one hundredths of a percent, five or ten basis points. Mm-hmm. So you can buy that whole portfolio for a lot less than one-tenth of one percent per year in expenses. You know, versus if you've got a stock broker, if you've got a conventional financial advisor, you're going to be more in the 2%, 200 basis point range instead of the less than 10 basis point range. And that falls right to your bottom line, you know. Uh, you know, by, by paying the financial advisor or the stockbroker 2% per year, that's, that's all lost to you. The odds that that person will be able to beat the market over the long term, Uh, and earn back that, you know, 200 basis points he's costing you or zero.
2: Yeah, and that was one of the key takeaways that we had with during Meb's conversation last week was not to – over obsess about the actual allocation, but just to make sure that you implement it in an extremely cost-effective way.
3: Yeah, I- exactly. I mean, you know, more important. And I, I, you can, I, I would, I would extend that another sentence or two out, which is, 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 you know, you can, you can, if you want to, obsess about your precise asset allocation, mm-hmm. but far, far more important than the precise allocation is how well you stick with it. Uh, and you're better off having. A suboptimal asset allocation, say one that's less, you know, uh, heavily invested in stocks, uh, that you can stick with, rather than an optimal allocation you can't stick with because it's too risky.
2: I like it. And so, th- when when you go into these asset classes, how many would you recommend to diversify across? So, if you at this level right now, there would just be four. It'd be. The U.S. stocks, small cap, international stocks, and bonds. Would you recommend going into say two or three l- additional levels of diversification within each of those allocations or e- each of those asset classes?
3: Yeah, there's there's something that's you know increasingly been known. I would go even simpler than that, let's mm-hmm. start from the simplest portfolio, mm-hmm. which is what's called a three fund portfolio, mm-hmm. which is total U.S. stock, which has both large and small stocks, total international, which also has both large and small stocks, and then you know, and then bonds and so that's the simplest uh one to do there's something that's actually even simpler than that and it's probably the best for most people is if you've got a good target date fund that is a target date fund that is fully indexed or fully passive and has very low expenses Mm -hmm. uh for most people that's even the best that's a one fund portfolio if you will the trick is you have to have a fund family that does that and i know of Only uh, one, and I really shouldn't mention the name of it because the SEC might get upset at (laughs) uh, (laughs) at it. But you probably know what the name of that fund company is, and and you can even say it, and I wouldn't get into trouble. So that's, that's, you know, so you can have a one fund portfolio, you can have a two fund portfolio using a total world stock market Mm -hmm. and a a, a bond. I wouldn't recommend that because that's too far and heavy. There's the three fund portfolio, there's the four fund portfolio that was the the one that Ned Faber looked at that we were talking about Mm. earlier. And then you can add in other asset classes. You can add in, for example, international small stocks uh, with an index fund or an ETF that does that. You could add in real estate investment trusts. Mm -hmm. You could add in precious metals equity. By the way, if you buy precious metals equity, gold stocks, uh, you better be very disciplined, you better have a, a very long time horizon, and you better be prepared for the fact that it's an asset class that can lose 75 percent of its value uh over you know a three or four year period which is exactly what it did between 2011 and late 2015
2: right and and it's also kind of difficult to watch your stock accounts rise as that one would probably be going in the other direction right it just makes you want to get rid of it
3: yeah exactly now that's the beauty though of investing passively that mm-hmm. is indexing if you will which is that when an asset class does really poorly okay it's generally not a bad idea to buy more of it yeah. you know you can rebalance back to your policy so if you if, if say given asset class is 10 percent of your overall portfolio and it does really lousy well it's going to go to seven or eight percent of your portfolio and that's the point where you have to t- buy more to top up again the 10 percent and there's some people who would even double down and go to you know 11 or 12 or 13 percent so that's the really beautiful thing is that when an asset class uh does really poorly that's often a really good reason to buy it because it means it's gotten a lot cheaper okay yeah and you know whereas when you're buying actively managed funds when you're buying funds where people are picking stocks and it does lousy you really have no way of knowing whether you just picked a lousy manager or whether you've picked a lousy asset class. If you've picked a lousy manager, you should fire her, okay? <laughs> if you've picked a lousy asset class, you should buy more, I like right? It. Because yes. it's gotten cheaper. So mm-hmm. it's gotten cheaper, and you're buying lower, and its eventual returns should be higher. I mean, at least in a statistical sense. That doesn't happen 100% of the time. But if it happens 6 out of 10 times, you go on the game.
2: Yeah. I really like uh, what you said about how just starting simple and being able to add lots of, you know, add funds as you go along. And it's really funny because Johnny's my co-host. His, he's got a Vanguard portfolio and he's only got one fund in it. It's VTI, which I think is just total, total stock market index. And I started with three funds, I believe that's pretty similar to what you've laid out. And since then, I've picked up probably another 20 because every time I look at a fund, I'm like, oh, this makes sense in my portfolio. This makes sense in my portfolio. So I just keep adding them. And I don't think that's necessarily the best strategy, but it's interesting that Johnny and I can compare our accounts you know, at any given point and see how they're performing against each other where his is fully in equities and just one singular fund and mine is diversified across, you know, twenty different asset classes or or not asset classes but um, but different funds within asset classes. So so very interesting to be able to compare them side by side. And Bill, I wanted to jump into I know I know you have uh, plans and stuff, but one of the one of the things that really turned me on to your research and supporting material was I came across one of your articles about a year and a half ago that was on lump sum investing versus dollar cost average. And I think there's also a component of value cost average in there. And when we decided to start the podcast, this was one of the main reasons why we decided because we found information like this and just realized what a gold mine it is to people of our age that are just getting started in the investing world. And Johnny and I come from basically two different paths. Johnny's a kind of a passive income expert. So he's got you know, tw- uh, 12, to 15 different revenue streams that he's built up himself online over the last four or five years. I'm the absolute opposite. I went all in on, on a business and had a good outcome and had a windfall but I have zero passive income so I want I'm basically the lump sum investor where J- Johnny is just because of his revenue streams is now a dollar cost average investor but specifically about someone who let's say they've just come into money or they've saved money and now they're ready they've read your books they're ready they've got their asset allocation in mind what is the advantage of doing a dollar cost average approach versus just putting it all in the market in a lump sum investment and hoping that the market goes up from that point forward?
3: Well, that's that's a really good question. It's a difficult question to answer. The way to do it is to think about it as sort of a thought experiment, mm-hmm. which is that let's take you know, you versus, versus Johnny. And let's Mm -hmm. just say for the sake of argument that Johnny got a million dollars 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. All right. And he had to invest it, but you didn't get your million dollars, uh, all at once. You got your million dollars, but you got it over 10 years, a hundred thousand dollars every year. All right. If Johnny put that million dollars into the market. All right. He had $10 million years. He had 10 million He had a million dollars times 10 years, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's 10 million dollar hyphen years, okay? Sort of like man years, all right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you've only got five, okay? Because you built up slowly, your average portfolio size was more or less $500,000. So you only had $5 million years in the market. Mm -hmm. So therefore, Johnny's portfolio should, in most circumstances, have had a higher return, simply because he had more dollars in the market over on average than you did, Mm -hmm. all right? And that's the difference between lump summing and dollar cost averaging, all right? Most of the time, lump summing beats dollar cost averaging because you've got more dollar years in the market, all right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and 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 it's higher return, but it's also higher risk, Okay, because if you have ten bad years, uh, if you've got horrible returns for those bad years, Johnny's going to do terrible. All right? right, and the easiest way to think about it is let's assume that you started, you invested from say 2000 to 2010. All right, 2000 was the top of the market, and if you invested lump summed, if you would put a million dollars in the market at 2000 by the time 2010 rolled around you'd be lucky if you broke even all right mm-hmm. whereas if you put a hundred thousand dollars in every single year you'd have come out ahead okay because you would have invested through two bear markets all right and you would have bought low so in that instance the dollar cost averaging person does better now most of the time that doesn't happen okay most of the time Mm -hmm. you don't invest through two bear markets all right so it's 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 apples and oranges on average lump sum investing has a higher return because it has higher risk right all right now there's another aspect to it so in that in that respect lump sum averaging is optimal And most of the time, dollar-cost averaging is suboptimal. But remember what I said earlier, that a suboptimal strategy that you can live with is better than an optimal strategy you can't.
2: Uh, Very Uh, good advice, yeah.
3: Yeah. So there's nothing wrong. To me, dollar-cost averaging is a wonderful crutch. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's a wonderful psychological crutch. And as Yogi Berra very famously said, You know, 90% of this game is half mental, and that's true of finance as well. If you can win the psychological game, then you've won the game, and dollar-cost averaging is not a bad way to do that. Now, having also said that, most people are going to wind up dollar-cost averaging anyway because they're not going to have, you know, a million or two or five million dollars dropped on them. Mm -hmm. They're going to save that money over many, many years. In drips and drabs, and so really, you know, by default, they're dollar cost averaging. There's no choice,
2: right? It's like if you had a hundred thousand dollars and you invest that in the market, but then each month, maybe you're putting in another two thousand dollars. That's still dollar cost averaging. It you're just putting a lot of weight up front.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So this article that is, it's one of my favorite articles I've ever written in finance. I kind of took it. My takeaway was that essentially, by dollar cost averaging, you're buying insurance, and that insurance premium may cost you. You say one to like low one percent like one to 1.5 percent which w- w- that would be the lack of performance on average that you would get by doing dollar cost averaging now the, there's the dollar cost averaging for different periods of time which are also covered in the article there's say six months there's 12 months there's 18 months 24 months 36 months and the longer you dollar cost average the the more it's essentially like the more insurance you have but also the more you're you're likely to hinder your own performance is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, or, or it's, it's, you know, that's, that's one way. It's a good way of putting it. Another way of putting it is simply saying that by, by dollar cost averaging, you've got a lower average equity exposure. You know, mm. you don't have, you don't have a hundred percent stock portfolio. You've got a 50-50 portfolio. When you, when you dollar cost average
2: yep, like over, it.
3: Over, over time.
2: Yeah. So the major takeaway, which is also the title of the article, is do not dollar cost average for more than 12 months. And that's actually...
3: You realize, by the way, I didn't write that article. That article was written by a guy by the name of Bill Jones, yeah. <laughs> who's, 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 who's a mathematician. So that's, mm-hmm. that's not my title, but I mm-hmm. thought it was a fine piece. So, you know, I, I agreed to put it on my website.
2: Yeah. And so, and the, yeah, efficient, fish, efficient fish frontier. So we'll leave a link to this in uh, the show notes. Yeah, so this is a strategy that I, I did so I opened a Vanguard account I took a lump sum and I applied this methodology to it where I got my asset allocation and then I set up the buys every month um, into these funds the trouble that I've been having is the market's been uh, you know of course pretty hectic there was the brexit and and so the brexit happened the market tanked and then almost recovered in like I don't know four days and I missed that <laughs> I wanted to go in and buy then but my buys were set up and then and then now now the market's been been doing pretty well and you know so now i'm like well should i just put the rest in now because i don't want to miss the upside so it goes back to what you said about the discipline and kind of sticking with a strategy right yeah
3: you, what, yeah what you're what you trying to put, what, you're, what you're what you're trying to insure against is not brexit which was mm-hmm. over in a matter of days right. what you're trying to 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 insure against what you're buying insurance against mm-hmm. is is a horrible uh, market. Like from you know 2007 to early 2009, uh, you know you had plenty of opportunities. The opportunities to buy low then didn't last for three days. They lasted for a year and a half.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, very good point. It's very difficult now. It's so easy to buy buy and sell stocks. It's like you turn on the news, you see a geopolitical event, and you're like, uh, <laughs> it's like I think that's almost some of the value that you get in with having a, an advisor. Uh, or someone that manages it for you is they it kind of keeps you a, you know a hand's length away from touching things. So certainly someone like like me and Johnny, who were on our computers all day long and you know one click away from our vanguard and e trade accounts it's very difficult to not to not be active and to just to stick with something so
3: that's that's where that's where knowledge of financial history comes in you can be the most brilliant computational finance person in the world and you'll still have your head handed to you if you don't know enough financial history and what financial history and financial theory tells you about macroeconomics is the two are almost inversely related Mm -hmm. because you are paid to bear risk. And the greater the risk you are bearing, the greater the return you have to get in order to make that investment. So when things look the worst, theoretically, that's when you should be buying. When things look the best, That's the time not to be buying because the risks don't look high, so you're not going to get paid a lot of return. And and in fact, when you look at financial history, that's what you learn. The very best times to buy stocks were 1932, (laughs) 1982, March of 2009, all times when looked like we were going down the tubes it looked like the end of the world as we know it i mean i lived through 1982 that looked like the end of the world as we knew it in stocks uh yeah. same thing with 2000 you know early 2009. we told our clients then when we were investing Putting more money into the market in late 2008 and 2009 was the odds are 80% that we're going to make you a lot of money with these purchases. (laughs) But there's a 20% chance we're going over the waterfall.
2: (laughs) And that 20% chance would also mean that it's probably some type of apocalyptic event, right?
3: Well, but you know, 2008, 2009 could have evolved into an apocalyptic event. I think we came very close. Wow. And so you get paid to bear that risk. And people also make the mistake of correlating macroeconomics and good economics with good returns. Well, all you have to do to disabuse yourself of that is to look at China, all right? China has had near 10% GDP growth over the past 25 years. Its stock returns have actually been negative in real dollars, wow. all right? A pretty close to zero in nominal dollars, before inflation dollars, and with after inflation dollars, it's been strongly negative Uh, so there's almost no correlation between economic growth and stock returns and this is one thing that drives me nuts you hear market strategists talk about the wonderful economic (laughs) prospects of this country or that country and i think to myself yeah that's a good reason not to own them
2: that's so interesting and i I guess that's that also plays into not being specific country bias like home country bias or if you think China's market uh, economy is going to be strong. It doesn't necessarily mean you should go out and buy their their, their market index because there might not be correlation there.
3: Yeah, it, it, exactly. You know, the bottom the bottom line is that you know you should really just turn off turn off the news. You know, when it comes to China, what I'm fond of saying is that a country that doesn't protect its its children from lead contaminated toys is probably not going to protect the minority interests of uh, foreign shareholders terribly well either.
2: <laughs> All right, yeah, definitely. I, I bought a bunch of RMB. At the absolute war- last, the absolute worst day when the exchange rate was 5.95, put it into fixed, fixed uh, foreign currency accounts or whatever, making like well, I don't know 1.8 percent. And since then, it's it's devalued. I think it's almost 20 percent. It's like 6.7 on the dollar now. I bought it at 5.95, so good timing on my part. There you go. <laughs> so, Bill, I want to be very conscious of your time, and we uh, we really appreciate you coming on. And I just had a, a couple of last questions to kind of summarize for some of our listeners. You know, you mentioned earlier you wish you had written one of your books, you know, 50 years ago. What advice would you give to people now, uh, or what would you, you know, what, what do you wish you had when you were younger that you could apply to, to investing strategy?
3: Well, th- th- that's two two separate questions. I mean, the, 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 the I'll answer the second question first. What I wished I had known 40 or 50 years ago was how low the risk was of being fully invested in stocks as part of a, as, as part of a periodic savings program. So, you know, I bought my first, I, I set up my first IRA, I think, in 1978. And I wished I had known back then that investing 100% in stocks when you're young is really not that risky because you're investing every year and eventually you'll catch the bottom of the market. All right. Mm-hmm. And had I done that, I would have caught the bottom of the market uh, in you know, 1981, 1982. And uh, so that was the first thing I wished I had known. The advice that I give to young people uh, is really pretty simple. It's kind of curmudgeonly. But we live in this very corrosive consumer oriented society where we're told constantly being told that we are what we wear we are what we drive we are what we live in and if you seek happiness in material goods if you think that stuff is going to make you happy you're going to make you're going to be miserable um Mm. money money doesn't buy stuff money buys time and it buys autonomy Money buys you the time uh, to do what you really feel like doing, what your passions are. And the worst thing, the worst way you can possibly spend your life is, is in a job you can't stand because you're making, you've are making got to make BMW payments, you know, because you know? the BMW will not, you know, the joy of owning a BMW doesn't last that long. You know, ignore the blandest mention of our, our consumer society, Madison Avenue, Does, you know, sells you nothing but discontent and save as much money as you can with as simply as you can. And then when you get to be an old geezer like me and you've got uh, adequate money saved up, you will kiss yourself every time you can finally check into a nice hotel.
2: Perhaps the best advice, investing advice anyone will ever give you, and for and for life itself. And that's one of the reasons that we like Shang Mai so much is that you go up there with essentially a small bag of clothes, and that's all you need. You rent a moped, you walk everywhere. No one's got uh, fancy or or flashy things. It's really difficult to spend more than twenty five hundred dollars in a month, and that's living very well, eating out three meals a day. So it's a great place to remind you that you don't need all that material stuff that you're absorbed with when you step back into, you know, the Western markets. So great advice. Really appreciate that. We're going to leave links to all of your books. I can't wait to to listen and to read the other ones that you've put out there. This call has been tremendously, uh, insightful and we really appreciate you coming on the show. And, um, Hope to catch up again soon, and and potentially do even a follow up with you if if uh, if you're ever over in Chiang Mai, we'll be happy to to host you or meet you any, anywhere that you are. Okay, very
3: good. Well, it's been my
0: pleasure.
2: All right, thanks a lot, Bill. Everyone else, stay tuned to another episode of Invest Like a Boss next week.
0: Man, that was such a good episode. Bill is such a smart guy, and I've learned a ton. And one of the biggest takeaways isn't even the the math or the strategy. It's more it's it's the emotion and the, the logic behind it you know when he said that the best strategy is one that you can live with not necessarily you know anything else the one that you can actually implement and and continue living with that really is the key Mm
1: mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really cool that Bill is also a neurologist. It's just a perfect complement to being an investment advisor or a, an investment or a financial theorist, understanding how emotions play into investing. And I think the other big takeaway for me was going into the lump sum versus dollar cost averaging and it is the the title of one of the articles that he published on the efficient frontier we'll make sure to, to leave that link please please read it if you haven't already it's it's critical knowledge for anyone who's investing is that you shouldn't dollar cost average for more than 12 months. So let's just say you have ten thousand dollars you want to put it into the market. Now you can use a little bit of discretion maybe the market's off its highs 20% and it seems like it's a good time to put it all in or maybe the market's at its highs and you're a little bit scared to put it all in. But the point Point is it doesn't make much sense statistically and mathematically to dollar cost average for more than 12 months because chances are you're just going to be hurting your, your performance. So if you want a dollar cost average statistically it makes sense to do it from 6 to 12 months and you have to look at it as essentially paying for an insurance premium and f- for that insurance you take a risk of not getting as much of a return but you also cover your downside a little bit. So some great takeaways from this episode.
0: Yeah I really enjoyed that. So if you guys are in the same situation that Sam was in a few years ago where you got a big lump some of money, either through selling a business, through inheritance, you know, lottery rating whatever it is, uh, you might not want to put all of it in that that very first day because you might just have bad timing with the market. It might be a bit higher than normal. But Bill really broke it down where it does not make sense if you just hold on to it and and you know put in a couple grand a month for the next five years because you're missing out on potential returns. And that's actually one thing that I'm focused on personally, where I haven't been spending any money for the last couple of years and I've just been making money and I haven't really started investing that much until just a few months ago, when know, really right before this podcast came out. So now I'm actually trying to play catch up. So I'm actually putting more money into investments now than... Then I will uh, maybe in the future. So every month I'm excited about putting my my three grand into Vanguard into index funds, but I'm also putting you know ten grand into things like Pure Street, which we, which we talked about, and the things that we're super excited about.
1: Yeah. So so I think this article of dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. It's really relevant to anybody because it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a million dollars tomorrow that you have to figure out what to do with. You might get a little bonus from your paycheck at the end of the year and have 10 grand and then you have another two grand every month that you want to invest. And you just need to figure out your own strategy. So do the research, make your own decisions and put together a strategy that works for you. And hopefully it's backed by some statistics and mathematics. And for anyone out there that hasn't read Bill's book, please listen to it. I listened to an audible. It took four hours and it's a tremendous, tremendous gem of learning based on all of Bill's experience and knowledge over his lifetime and what he's found to work. I love it, buddy.
0: So I hope you enjoyed this episode. want to give a quick shout out to the latest reviews of Invest Like a Boss. I really enjoyed uh, the one today. Sam, who is it by? Yeah, it's by
1: Dong from the USA. It's- And they say, I love this podcast. The hosts are like you and me trying to figure it out where to invest their hard-earned money, but they have the benefit of being able to speak with gurus in the investment world then sharing it with all the listeners. And Dong, that's exactly what we're trying to do and figuring out for ourselves and hopefully helping you guys figure out some of your own decisions along the way.
0: Awesome. So stay tuned. Keep leaving these awesome five-star iTunes reviews and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at bestlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe
1: on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.